Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast podcast, episode 46. I'm Tian Duyeb, and I reckon I've spent at least sort of 20 to 30 minutes a day on the throne, depending on what I've eaten, for the 13,177 days that I've lived. Uh, and altogether, that's only about a seventh of a year. So Elizabeth II celebrating her 65th year on the throne, you realise, God, she really needs a lot more fibre in her diet. Yes, toilet jokes. I've started with a toilet joke today because it's a good way to prepare you all for the world heading faster and faster and more rapidly down the lav every single day. In the UK, MPs have voted to trigger Article 50 because you know it's better to regret things you have done to ruin the future of the country rather than things you haven't done to leave it in its current ruined state instead. 114 MPs voted against because of the will of the other people that we don't really hear about so often and Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott abstained from voting due to a migraine, which many were angry about, but to be fair, Labour right now is a constant severe debilitating headache for everyone in the UK. And like a dud firework producing a depressing wet fizzling out noise, the vote led to the Brexit white paper being revealed. So called because there's basically fuck all on it. Meanwhile, in the US, the Patriots had a surprising last minute victory at the Super Bowl. And if that isn't an analogy for America right now, I don't know what is. Several of the Super Bowl adverts promoted the benefits of immigration, leading Trump supporters to say that they'll now be boycotting those companies, including Budweiser and Coca-Cola. With any luck, more and more companies will join in and eventually ardent Trumpeteers, that's what I'm calling Trump fans now, you know, the hope that it means you might be able to buy a mute to quieten them with, eventually ardent Trumpeteers will be so weak from a lack of food and drink that they've boycotted that they won't be able to invent massacres anymore. Yes, Kellyanne Conway, President Trump's counsellor and official US ambassador to the Upside Down, accused the press on a Fox News show of covering up the Bowling Green Massacre, an event that never actually happened. But fair play to Conway, channels like Fox News normally don't shy away from covering stories that are completely made up, so maybe she has a point. In the past week, Donald Trump has also managed to argue with the Australian Prime Minister about who wants to take in immigrants the least, like some sort of giant racist tennis game where both players are constantly over the line. And Lady Justice joined the Women's March a little bit late, but with devastating effect, as a federal judge halted Trump's travel ban and the Court of Appeal blocked the Tangerine Nightmare's attempts to overturn the decision. Homeland Security upheld the court decision, which of course they should 
should because it's the law. And that is great news, even if Donny Trump tweeted calling the move ridiculous and referring to Judge James Robart, who blocked the move as a so-called judge. Vice President Mike Pence said that on CBS News that by saying so-called Judge Trump wasn't questioning the legitimacy of the judge, which if that is the case, it's as concerning as we thought, and Trump just genuinely isn't sure what to call people who preside over court proceedings. If you weren't already concerned that America is being led by a man who would struggle to beat a chicken at Boggle, the president then took to Twitter, his personal soapbox that sadly lacks anything he could clean his mouth out with, to say that he has instructed Homeland Security to check all people entering the US very carefully. Whew. Because I don't know if any of you have flown to the States in the last few years, but up until he'd said that, Homeland Security were just asking people, hey, put your hand up if you have a bomb, and hoping people would be honest. In the UK, Parliamentary Speaker John Burkow made an excellent statement about how Donald Trump will not be addressing Parliament, which is great. However, I'd really have loved to have heard what Dennis Skinner was going to heckle him with, and now we'll sadly never know. Primordial boozer Nigel Farage has split up with his wife, so I guess he is keen to stay in the single market after all. I wouldn't normally comment on gossip like that, but it's important to note that Farage's partner is German, and so I guess he is a man of conviction if he knows that he can't leave the European Union while staying in another. I expect in the divorce, Farage will just say he wants to get out as quickly as possible while trying to wangle his way out without paying any sort of prearranged exit fee. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Uh, it took till February, but we're finally at a week where the news has slowed down enough that you can complete at least one mindfulness exercise before the next headline arrives. In fact, I have a very handy list here that some of you might like to try uh, next time you're watching the news. Uh, in that gap, you could mindfully breathe in deeply and then on the exhale, shout your favourite swear word before tweeting it to everyone or using it as your Facebook status and then throwing your computer out of the window. Or you could try clenching your fist, breathing in and then on the breathe out, punch a Nazi. Or you could try stretching and yawning really, really, really loudly every time someone boring tries to tell you to do mindfulness exercises. I find all of those really help. Better? Oh. Lots of stuff on this week's show, and something I always forget to say is if you are a new listener, firstly, hello! Secondly, uh, do go back and listen to some old episodes if you have the ear time, as while my jokes expire in relevance about 10 minutes after I say them in today's current news climate, a lot of the interviews and content is still relevant because sadly the world hasn't been fixed despite all my efforts and goddamn, I really try. For example, on this week's show, uh, I should probably mention the new NHS upfront charges for foreign patients. But actually, if you go back to episode 40, there's a whole bit on the myth of health tourism. Episode 38 has stuff on the whole virgin care privatising the NHS scam. And episode 41 has an interview with Emma Runswick from the BMA about why the NHS is underfunded. So I'll probably uh, cover it a bit more next week. On the other hand, uh, if you'd prefer, why not not listen to all those things and just write to me asking why I haven't covered any of them. And I'll send you a very sarcastic response. A few quick things before we get into today's show. Uh, firstly, a big thanks to Cat Day for donating to the Patreon. Cat uh, asked if I could plug her blog, and I'm not going to do it because she asked, but I am going to do it because it's great and I enjoy reading it. Uh, it's called Chronicle Flask, and it can be found at chronicleflask.com, which is a very good website to put a blog of that name. Uh, it's all about looking at dodgy science, and the last update is about the truth behind whether toast can give you cancer or not. Uh, though sadly, there is still nothing on there about what happens if you're bitten by radioactive toast, so I guess I'm just going to have to express myself and see if I get magical toast powers or you know just look very crusty which would be much the same as now cat uh, is also on Twitter at Coronical Flask uh, so mega thanks to her and if you too would like to donate to the partly political patreon then please head to patreon.com forward slash parpolebro and anything you can give towards the making of this show is super super appreciated uh, 
Uh, also, mega thanks to Matt Hoss, who I keep forgetting to thank on this, and he's been helping with the podcast for a while now. Um, my brother, The Last Skeptic, whose beats I keep nicking for the show, and he has a new EP with Dreamer Cleanout called Cheese on Brown Bread, so do check that out on the Spotted Tunes. And almost lastly, if you like the noises that I make on this show, come and see me live. Uh, I'm at Leicester Comedy Festival on Thursday 9th of Feb at 9pm at the Exchange Bar, doing a work in progress that will be a lot of work and very, very much in progress, but it is okay as tickets are free. Um, if you're not in Leicester, but in London, then I'm going to be doing a similar thing at Angel Comedy Club this month at the Bill Murray uh, on February 21st and 22nd. And that is also free, but you can book in advance for a fiver via the Angel Comedy website, which you can find tucked away in the corners of the internet. And very lastly, uh, I'm on the very fun Worst Foot Forward podcast that came out last week. Uh, it's a podcast by the very funny comedian Ben Vandervelt and Barry McStay, who is very funny as well, but he's an actor. So is he pretending to be funny or not? I don't know. Uh, but the episode I'm on is about the worst ever protest. Um, so do check it out. And uh, post lastly, uh, check out George Monbiot's Guardian piece. Yeah, a Guardian, because I'm a metropolitan liberal elite. You know, just one of those ones with no cash or influence or class. Uh, George Monbiot's piece is about how corporate dark money is taking power on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, I know some people aren't big fans of George as he sometimes writes about going fishing with a spear or something but do have a read of that piece as it's proper investigative journalism for once uh, and stuff that I hope to cover at some point in the future. Um, I've posted it up on the Part Polbro Facebook group if you haven't already joined and I'll tweet it again from the Partly Political uh, Part Polbro Twitter account this week as well. Right, uh, this week's show has a chat with historian Giles McDonough about the history of fascism because, you know, I thought that might be useful. And, of course, more bloody Trump and bloody Brexit because, you know, that's every bloody week. Uh, I'm very much hoping to get back to some more investigative bits soon and to bring back the partly big question of the week too, but it sort of requires world leaders to stop being such dicks first so I don't have to keep reporting on all the dickishness. Yeah, the ball's in your court, May and Trump. Hmm, mentioning court to Trump this week probably isn't going to help, is it? So, here's some politics things. Train Drivers Unions, RMT and Aslef have finally reached a deal with the train company who specialise in getting nowhere, Southern Rail. Full details of the deal haven't been revealed yet, but it's expected that it should improve the rail service from what it is now, although that's really not saying much, as it would currently be an improvement to have one sad donkey carrying a single passenger from Brighton to London twice a week in comparison to what they currently have. Even if the donkey keeled over, it'd probably still be more reliable. However, Aslef, who represent the guards that would be let go under Southern's proposals to give more responsibility to the drivers, they still have to vote if they want to go ahead with this deal. RMT, who represent conductors, are still going ahead with their strike action as they've been barred from the talks about the deal, and if nothing else, you think Southern Rail would want RMT members in on it to help conduct the conversation. So it's a very slow progress, much like a Southern Rail train, and it may amount to nothing, much like most of your Southern Rail train journey tickets. But it's the first iota of hope for the 500 guards who may lose their jobs and all the passengers who might actually be able to use the rail to commute again. Transport Secretary Chris Grayling, a man who always looks like he's been told he's going to get pranked but he doesn't know when, he insisted that he doesn't believe that there needs to be fewer people on the railways. Though he may have just said that because he looks like the sort of villain who'd tie someone to the tracks. The Aslef members vote on February the 16th so we'll see if the plan goes full steam ahead after that or more, well, like Southern Rail. The Stoke-on-Trent by-election is taking place on the 23rd of February after Tristram Hunt realised that his job required him talking to common people. And it seems to be a race between Labour and UKIP for the seat. Which is a tough race considering politically Labour seem to be going nowhere and UKIP are usually travelling backwards. Running for UKIP is party leader and pound shop Michael Stipe, Paul Nuttall, and things aren't going great for him. 
Nuttall registered his home address on his nomination papers for the election as an address in Stoke-on-Trent. However, Channel 4 journalist Michael Crick noticed that the home is completely empty, was still available to rent up to the day before he registered it and has been on the market since November last year. Top wankers, Guido Fawkes. Uh, yeah, I tried to think of a wittier name for them in that, but I think that is the best description. Top wankers, Guido Fawkes. Uh, they took a pic of Paul sleeping on a mattress on the floor in an otherwise empty room. So has Paul Nuttall committed electoral fraud, or does he actually believe in squatters' rights? Or perhaps he's a minimalist and has just committed to that in-home decor policies and hair. And if he isn't living there, then is he just an economic migrant to the area and will he kick himself out if elected? Either way, he's now being investigated by police and to top it all off, while walking through Stoke today with Nigel Farage, local Stokeians threw eggs at them, resulting in one of my favourite photos of 2017 so far. I bet as those eggs neared his face, Nuttall wondered if they were just tiny reflections of himself until it hit him. It's really not looking too good for UKIP in Stoke, especially when locals are far more pro-exit than Brexit. I'll report more on the Stoke election next week. The government is promising to make things easier for renters because so many now can't afford to buy homes as all the landlords in the Conservatives own them all and rent them out. The white paper? Yeah, another one. And yeah, I've already made a white paper joke this podcast and that is your lot and I haven't even got to the Article 51 properly yet, so deal with it. Uh, the white paper is going to encourage landlords to give guaranteed three-year family-friendly tenancies, which I presume means kids will only pay half rent, and make it easier for companies to build properties for rent or as they used to be called in the old days, homes. They will also be looking at new measures to stop landlords offering substandard properties, but that doesn't fill me with hope as it was only in January last year when Conservative MPs voted overwhelmingly against a measure to make sure landlords make their homes fit for human habitation. So what will the white paper ensure the new homes are fit for? Human visitation but not staying too long? Animal habitation? Conservative habitation? Ha! I did a mean gag about Conservatives not being humans. Ha! The number of people in private rented accommodation has doubled since the year 2000, with many spending over half their salary on rent now. Or, like me, more than half of what doesn't even constitute as a salary, with the other less than half of my not salary going on crisps. And I can't see any of these measures doing anything to help me with my crisp addiction, goddammit. Typical. House building is low at the moment, and I don't mean that they're just making bungalows. Affordable house building is at its actual lowest for 24 years, and I don't mean they're making really small, really cheap bungalows. So look, this is a serious issue that needs to be tackled quickly, and Community Secretary and grandson of Ming the Merciless, Sajid Javid, said they are determined to make housing more affordable. Though he is also a landlord himself for properties in London, and once publicly said there's no such thing as a housing bubble, which is the sort of thing you'd say if you were inside the bubble and hadn't ever left it because outside the soapy thin walls are angry tenants. Ministers have promised that they still won't allow building on the green belt, which will please the green giant and his green trousers. But if developers already have planning permission to build there, then they must use it. If you go all the way back, no, keep going, way, way back, way, 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 way back, all the way to episode six of this podcast when I spoke to John Ellidge and he explained why the green belt isn't very green and we should probably build on it, then you'll realise just how confused everyone gets about it. More on the white paper next week once they've actually bloody released it. Do you remember last year when everyone called everyone else Hitler? Do you remember? It was like 2016's Bay. Do you remember? It was like Hitler this, Hitler that. Ken Livingston said pretty much everyone was like Hitler. Boris Johnson said everyone else was like Hitler. And now in 2017, it's finally gone global as a trend as people everywhere have pointed at Trump and said, well, he's a lot like Hitler. But is he? I mean, Hitler wasn't that big a fan of Russia. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't orange and didn't tweet. 
There is no doubt that far-right extremism is on the rise, though, with white supremacist Barney Gumble, a.k.a. Steve Bannon, being Trump's right-hand man, the KKK endorsements of Donald, as though there's been some sort of pillow sale on, and the rise of hate crimes and graffiti swastikas all across the US since Trump's election victory. So it does seem like it's a return to the days of the Nazis. Similarly, the rise in hate crime in Britain and the worrying popularity of far-right candidates in France and Hungary and a kind of overall racist tone to a lot of the politics, it's all very, very worrying. But is it a return to fascism? And what exactly is fascism? And why is it so difficult to spell? Or is it just me that keeps missing out the first S? I mean, is there a better joke about the double S in fascism that I could make that wouldn't just be awful? Well, the answers to all those questions, well, OK, the first few anyway, are in history. As astronomer Carl Sagan said, you have to know the past to understand the present. As did the 26th president of America, Theodore Roosevelt. And to be fair, he probably said it first. I mean, if only Carl Sagan had looked back and checked. Anyway, who better to explain than historian Giles McDonough? Giles is an expert in German history and has written several books on the rise of fascism and World War II, including After the Reich and 1938. Giles also writes for various papers, is brilliantly and openly angry about Brexit on his Twitter feed, and somehow, as well as all that, or perhaps at the same time, which might explain the excellent tweeting, he's an expert on wine. Giles very kindly explained to me what happened before and if it's happening again. Now, I should say, uh, I asked Giles to talk more about the politics of fascism, as I'm sure you, like me, know many of the horrors inflicted by Hitler and about the Holocaust. So I don't want you to think that we're not mentioning it in this, but I thought it'd be best to try and work out what the similarities between then and now are, rather than discuss everything that Hitler did. Uh, I also didn't ask him if it was okay to punch a Nazi, but I also sort of did ask him, so listen out for that. And regardless of whatever his answer was, I still think it definitely is. Oh, and... excuses. Somehow the recording temporarily stopped just as I asked Giles question number one. Uh, his reply and all the rest is fine so I've re-recorded the very first question which will mean it sounds a bit odd compared to the rest of it. Look I've made several episodes without a screw up so stop looking at me like that all right? Stop it. No Susie stop it. Stop it. Okay so here's my re-recorded question and Giles. Do you think uh, what we are seeing now with Donald Trump in the US and a return for nationalism in the UK and France and Hungary is the beginnings of a return to fascism or is that an over-the-top reaction? Well, I think possibly it is. I mean, the word fascism has become one of those insults, hasn't it? It's, you know, you're a fascist. It's like being a racist. It's like being a sexist. It's being, you know, it's a rude word. But it's, uh, and I've seen quite a lot recently on Twitter and that sort of thing, that it, uh, particularly in America, they're putting out a sort of list, a checklist of uh, what constitutes fascism. And essentially in a very un- or ahistorical way, they put out this sort of list and you tick it, it, the boxes and it seems to suggest it's, it's uh, Theresa May or, or Donald Trump or this sort of thing. And it always figures certain things that you look at as a historian and you say, hmm, in 1920, they didn't think very much about that. Um, and so historically, it's of very little worth. I think you have to start with fascism. That It came out of a, a unique set of circumstances. It was grown in a soil that we don't really possess anymore. And that is that it was really the child, in most cases, of the First World War. And if I say that it was the child of the First World War, it was... Um, 
largely based on the militarization of society that took place in the four years of fighting, not just on the Western and Eastern fronts, but also particularly on the Isonzo front, so therefore the Italian fascism, which predates German fascism. It shouldn't be forgotten that Mussolini came to power in 1922, um, uh, before Hitler was even a really a mass movement, so that Hitler's march in 1923 on the 9th of November, the famous uh, putsch that uh, started on the 8th and set off on the 9th, if you like, was inspired by Mussolini's march on Rome. So Mussolini gave everything to Hitler, virtually everything to Hitler. And then, you know, in our definitions of um, fascism, we have to look back and see what Mussolini created, and he created this highly operatic uh, military movement which militarized society, dressed them all up in smart uniforms, had them all running around and doing things sort of, um, you know, like that, that, that swimming that they do. You remember those sort of Busby Barclay swimming things, you know, synchronized swimming and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, the idea of sort of military synchronization, uh, a, a military control of society, a streamlining of command, so the so-called Hitlerian uh, Führer, Prinzip, you know, the principle of leadership, so that there's one clear leader handing down one clear command all the way down, and there is no uh, opportunity for anybody challenging the command. It is all based on uh, 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 an operatic form uh, interpretation of military life. And uh, a, a, there are uh, separate elements from that. And, of course, the word that springs to mind is a sort of great sort of pseudo-intellectual uh, watchword, which is Gesamtkunstwerk. So that when Hitler takes over uh, fascism, becomes the leading exponent of fascism, or particularly the most worrying exponent of fascism, uh, the Gesamtkunstwerk is this Wagnerian term, which describes Wagner's operas in which everything in the opera has been designed or composed or drawn by uh, by Wagner. You know, he designed the set. He, he you know, he designed the opera house. He, he uh, wrote the music. He wrote the words. He did everything. So the idea of the total work of art, the Gesamtkunstwerk, is what Hitler is looking for in fascism. But he's taken that over from Mussolini. Uh, he's just made it slightly better. And the only thing that Hitler really contributes to fascism, which isn't in Mussolini's take on fascism, is racialism. At the beginning, uh, Mussolini's fascism is not particularly racialist. It's not directed against an enemy within. The Jews don't um, get attacked until 1938, and that's largely under pressure from Hitler. So those first 16 years of Mussolini's fascism are not marked by any particular form of racialism. So, you know, we do have a very clear vision of that fascism. You know, it's not anti-feminist uh, in 1922 or even in 1938 because feminism hasn't been born yet. So you can't say, well, Donald Trump doesn't like women. He's a misogynist. He's a fascist. That doesn't work for a historian. A historian can't actually deal with that sort of idea of pushing that idea backwards in time. That doesn't work. 
you can only work with what happens at the time. Um, the other uh, sort of, if you're a train spotter and you're looking for fascism, is uh, corporatism. You know, instead of parliaments, you abolish parliaments and you have it re replaced by corporations. So all the firemen, let's say, get together and elect um, a leading firemen to a corporation of firemen, and they then form uh, consultative bodies which can advise the government on what firemen like and what firemen dislike and what firemen need. They don't have a vote as such, but they can offer their counsel and then they can send in requests to central government. So there is no parliamentary democracy as such, but there, uh, you know, you have corporate which is a sort of, you know, if you, as I say, if you're a train spotter and you're, you're looking for the uh, things that you need to identify fascism, normally it's corporate state uh, and not a parliamentary state. So that, that is also quite important for recognizing fascism. The other thing, and here we're a bit closer to Theresa and to Trump, is the Volksgemeinschaft, which was so famous in Hitler's form of fascism, which means the national society, if you like, or the popular society. People want to call it the ethnic society. They want to, because the word folk or folks can mean lots of things in German. They want to right. say it's the racial society. Or, or it's the popular society, or it's the ethnic society. But in fact, to be a bit more, a bit kinder, I think popular, national rather than racial. But what it means essentially is we, if, when we're trying to level this uh, fascist idea at people like Theresa May or, or Marine Le Pen or whatever, is we heard it all with Blair at the beginning, didn't we? Um, the big society. And I, I lose track of how many times I hear it. The great society, I think, was Ronald Reagan. Um, and then um, uh, uh, Dave, he had another word for it, didn't he? But it was all essentially the same thing. And recently, Theresa has come out with an undivided society or something like that. They're all pushing at the same thing, that we're going to be united and with the slightly fearsome implication that if you won't join in the society, society will deal with you on the side. I.e., sure. if you don't support the football match, someone will come out and beat you up on the lines. You know, that's essentially the message that you get um, from all these new sort of vaguely post-democratic governments, and we'll come back to that idea that seems to be happening at the moment, which is you either muck in or there's nothing for you and you yeah. will not be helped by that society unless you actually are prepared to roll up your sleeves. It was all in the government white paper the other day, I think. Um, unless you're prepared to uh, roll up your sleeves and support Brexit, for example, then Brexit won't support you. Um, and sure. there is a further form of fascism, while we're still doing our train spotting bit, <laughs> which is the Iberian form of fascism, which is slightly later. It's a sort of 10 years more later, which is Franco and Salazar. And they're both lasted, of course, into the 20s. But that, to the best of my knowledge, was not clerical, but it wasn't um, racialist either, was it? I don't think there was a, a, an aggressive racial enemy to Franco or Salazar, but it was corporate. 
So, you know, we can tick one of the boxes there of the corporate society, particularly, I think I know a bit more about Portugal than I do about Spain, but it was definitely, Portugal was definitely a corporate society. And I think um, it was corporate fascism, if you like. So, so that, that's my answer to the first question, if you like. Sure. So, so there are elements of corporate fascism, but what we overall what we're seeing now probably isn't fascism as such. As not we, really, I mean, because they're... it's not very military or militarized, is sure. it? Sure. No. We no, don't no. have the grand opera. No, no, no. Of course, and and but again, it echoes with as you were saying. You know, the the language used of, um, as we have here, the whole will of the people thing is very yes. Oh, well, that's very fascist yeah, sure. and that's very totalitarian. Which is, you know, because it comes ultimately back to the philosopher Rousseau, who postulates this idea on the eve of the French Revolution, and the will of the people is never properly defined by anything really voiced by anything other than somebody wanting to say. I have the will of the people, or the will of the people is so-and-so. But it's never based on uh, you know, any individual voices or any collective voice. It's based on somebody saying that they, by some sort of God-given power, they know the will of the people. And that's what we hear from Theresa, and that is what we hear um, presumably from Trump as well, which is they are the voice of the people because they know the will of the people, despite the fact they only know the voice of 51.9% of the people. But... Um, <laughs> You know that is the will of the people. So sure. And what was and what I was going to say is, are there are there elements in today's society that sort of that are similar to uh, post post First World War that are, that have, that led to the emergence of fascism? You know, we've got issues with austerity at the moment. We've got issues of a sort of divided feel in the country. Yes, I was going to come to that. I mean, we were talking earlier on about soil and you know how we grow fascism. But, you know, if you were to compare this country or America, and I'm told, you know, that parts of America are absolutely, I, I go very seldom to America, but, you know, parts of America are very poor and people live in great poverty. And, you know, a whole, um, I was reading today about Akron, which figures in a favorite film of mine. And apparently Akron is just full of people shooting up heroin and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's not at all the dreamy place, the resort town that I'd associated with the film of Harvey. Um, um, but, um, you know, there is poverty, but it is not a poverty that you could compare to 1929 in Germany when fascism really took off. I mean, you know, we don't ever see the sort of situation, the sort of unemployment, the sort of mass poverty, the people living on, I mean, I had a description of what the average poor Berliner was eating in a day in 1932, and I think it was two small potatoes and a quarter of cabbage, and if they were lucky, oh, wow. about 30 grams of fat. I mean, you know, that oh, two slices of bread. You know, that, you know, there are welfare systems even in the in the United States, and very few people live like that. I mean, I, I shouldn't say this, but if I look around me, you know, everybody looks quite plump, let's face it. You know, they are not starving to death. Um, so, I, you know, when we're talking about the soil that produced the, the swings of votes towards Adolf Hitler's party from 1929 onwards, it isn't the same soil. Sure. So we do have austerity and that sort of thing, but everybody's walking down the road with a mobile telephone. You know, um, it, it's not really comparable. 
Sure. I, su- I suppose it's that thing where everyone always thinks they're they're having the worst time. You know, they, it's, well, it's, it's kind yeah, of relative well. to their own experience, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, join the club. But yeah, you know, yeah. I cannot. <laughs> I can't really honestly put my hand in my heart and say, you know, we live in the sort of misery. And we've all seen photographs and old films of just how miserable people's lives were, particularly following the Wall Street crash. And, you know, in terms of direct influence on politics at the time, what happens after the Wall Street crash, Bruning starts governing by decree, he can't get a majority in the House, he's only saved by the fact that Hindenburg allows him to govern by uh, by decree until he eventually drops him in favour of his friend Parton and uh, and so it goes on and essentially all the while as more and more people lose jobs and 7 million people are out of work by 1932 you know, Hitler just gains and his gains exponentially, you know, his seats in Parliament increase with with every election because these people are seeing in him a form of saviour who will restore work. Now, there you are looking at comparisons, not necessarily in this country, I think, but maybe with Trump, that a lot of people, you know, in provincial America, you know, away from the eastern western seaboards, uh, are seeing the collapse of industrial towns like Detroit and that sort of thing. And probably look to Trump as a sort of saviour. Sure. Sure. Is, is that, I mean, is that what sort of led people to go for Hitler? You know, it was, he had, he had, it's a, he was a wonderful orator, wasn't he? You know, he, he performed to these big crowds, much like I suppose Trump has to his audiences, made, had very clear messages. He had um, very clear messages. And what's more, like Trump, and like Theresa, I think, is trying to do a bit, although, I'm, you know, um, I'm not sure I can take that seriously, but um, uh, uh, a little bit like she's trying to do because she's she's talking about the will of the people and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, like Trump, she's saying, you know, I'm only... I think you're more talking about the sort of Nigel Farage's at this point rather than Theresa. Yes, yes. But, I mean, you know, like Trump, uh, he's saying, you know, I'm not here. I'm going to drain the swamp or whatever his slogan is or, you know, I'm, I'm going to remove the elites. And I think they've all been feeding off one another with this sort of vocabulary of theirs. But um, Trump is, is pointing to these people who have fallen by the wayside while, you know, different groups of society have been sort of brought up and featured by successive governments, particular under Obama, you know, where, you know, it might have been one day it was homosexuals or it was blacks or whatever. Well, you know, these sort of honest goodness white Americans were being pushed to one side as uninteresting and unimportant in the in the way things were, while other people were more important and they naturally resented it. They said, you know, but what about us? You know, aren't we honest, forthright, proper Americans? You know. So he's been levelling his discourse at these people. And then finally, you know, they they appear to have had their say. And you get a bit of that in this country as well. I see it an awful lot on Twitter is, you know, now that we've had a sort of click vote, which is, you know, what the plebiscite or referendum really was, you know, it was a sort of click vote, like a computer vote. Now we've had a sort of click vote and people who out there thought that, you know, their vote stood for nothing have said that, you know, we've toppled the mighty elite. You know, we're now in charge. It's what we think that goes now. Sure, sure. And and, and that's, I guess, part of the, uh, you know, this whole 
era of misinformation that we seem to be in. And I, I keep hearing people refer to it as the post-truth era, which I, I personally think is absurd because newspapers have been giving <laughs> different views of the truth for a long time, as have politicians. Uh, was kind of giving purposeful misinformation a part of fascism? Is that is that a very new thing? Or is that something that we've seen before? Yes, yeah, no, we're getting on to propaganda here. And... Um, it's quite an interesting point, which I've gone into myself in a book which is yet to be published. But, um, you know, uh, Mussolini put uh, his son-in-law, Ciano, in charge of propaganda. Uh, Hitler, Hitler very famously put um, Goebbels in charge of propaganda. But in fact, Hitler never gave him really the, the mining rights. He remained his own propaganda chief, and it was very important to him. Now, at first, propaganda is not... So, uh, Ciano is just the press secretary, if you like. But propaganda has no, um, particularly in Catholic countries, no negative idea in 1920 or even 1930. It just means what the Office of Propaganda at the Vatican has to say. And the Office of, depending on your religious um, um, beliefs, I suppose, but, you know, the Office of Propaganda is just there to tell the people what the Pope says is orthodoxy. That's all it's about. You know, if you can use contraceptives or not, or whether you can have abortions or not, all that comes out of the office of propaganda, uh, the propaganda of the faith. Um, but uh, Hitler was already aware that there was another use of propaganda, and he got that from Britain. So when you read Mein Kampf, he, he talks about this as well, this sort of black idea of propaganda as well as the white idea of propaganda, not just telling people what Nazism represents and what they're going to do and reporting on their successes and that sort of thing, but also because during the First World War, Crew House, which is that nice white building opposite the Curzon Cinema, in Mayfair, Crew House was occupied by the Beaverbrooks, the, the newspaper proprietors, the equivalent of, of, of Murdoch in, in their day, who after 1916 ran propaganda for the British war effort. And during that time, the main newspaper proprietors were there distorting the news to make it look as if Germany was committing endless atrocities and that sort of thing, you know, babies on the on top of bayonets and that sort of thing, nuns being right, rough, right left and centre. Some of it had its origin in a little bit of truth, like the best propaganda does, you know. The best propaganda merely exploits something that has happened, uh, you know, a, a little bit of truth and an awful lot of lie. Um, so uh, some of this stuff that was being pumped out by British propaganda during the First World War was based on a small amount of truth and then blown out of all proportions um, to make it look as if the sort of Germans were, were inhuman monsters in everything they did. And, you know, whenever they saw a, a nun, they mutilated her and raped her and did everything else. Now, Hitler was, um, whether he based his great admiration on crew, of Kruhaus on solid facts or not, I can't really tell you. Very little has been written about Kruhaus. But that was what Hitler seized on, and he seized on the importance of distorting the press. Now, when uh, you know Hitler comes to power in 1933, and from March onwards, when Goebbels finally gets his his job as Minister of Propaganda a month later, after that, you know, the control of the newspapers is a very, very important thing. That they have control one by one, they take over the different groups of newspapers. Now, that's easy enough for them because most of them are Jewish-owned. 
land. And as the Jews lose their power and lose their wealth and are gradually expelled from Germany, it's easy for the Nazis to seize one after the other on all the great media groups and take them over. Of course, we have a similar system of propaganda based on uh, powerful newspaper magnates who favor and to some extent appoint political bosses. They appoint the prime ministers to some extent or appoint a number of people, you know, a number of people in uh, Theresa's cabinet, for example, will be, you know, blessed by uh, Rupert Murdoch in some way in that, you know, they, they write copy for his newspapers and that sort of thing. Uh, or, or, you know, famously, you know, the, the go thing with Dacre sure. and Murdoch and that sort of thing, although he's no longer in there officially anymore, you know. Uh, these people are immensely important in our society. No prime minister in this country uh, can uh, assume office without first sort of going in to see Murdoch first. You know, we had it with Teresa. She went to see him quite recently, didn't she? Um, and Dave was always hanging around Mur Murdoch and Blair, too. And I think even Brown, you know, it's just something you have to do if you're going to become prime minister. You have to have your little time with Murdoch. And the details of the meeting are never disclosed. But but that is not a state thing. The state is not running the newspapers. The state don't own the newspapers. I don't know if that makes it any better. But, you know, having the voice of the Daily Mail behind you, having the voice of the Telegraph and the Barclay Brothers, which is hugely in favour of Brexit, for example, you know, so the, that's the Daily Telegraph for you. Murdoch with the Sun, although he allowed the Times, which doesn't sell very many copies, he allowed the Times to be pro-Remain. Uh, um, similarly, uh, Dacre allowed um, the Sunday Mail to be pro-Remain, because that presumably is less important. Anyhow, you're, you've got a, a police card. Sure. Um, so, um, yes, so I mean, what I wanted to say there is propaganda was, strangely enough, based on Hitler's admiration for Crew House and British propaganda in the First World War. And it doesn't start off as a negative term at all. It just means education and dissemination of orthodoxy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll be back with Giles in a minute, but first... Donald Trump, Donald Trump, scary Donald Trump, orange, orange Donald Trump, racist Donald Trump, sexist Donald Trump, stupid Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, oh my God, President Donald Trump, that's a real thing, oh God, it's scary, I'm really scared. So, firstly, uh, let me quickly reel off a list of things that the US president has done that are several billion levels of concern above the spider in my bathroom that has somehow worked out how to hang in his web so I can't put him in a glass. That, that is bigly concerning. Yeah, Trump is much worse than that, though, and it's becoming so exhausting trying to keep up with his daily outbursts of Joffreyness. For example, there is his talk of dismantling the Dodd-Frank regulations that were put in place to stop the 2008 financial crisis from happening again. It prevented bankers from creating things like credit default swaps all over again, and all the sorts of stuff that meant bad debts got sold off again, and would again lead to people losing their homes, decimating their savings, and plunging the world into an almost recession. But, you know, Trump thinks Dodd-Frank should be taken apart because, and I quote, Friends of mine that have nice businesses, they can't borrow. Ah, well, boo frickin' who? Friends of mine also can't borrow due to the global financial crisis of 2008, you unbelievable ass badger. Next on things that if you read them in a Stephen King novel you'd think he'd gone too far are Trump's gun law proposals. The House of Representatives has already voted to overturn Obama's regulations that prevented people with mental health conditions from buying a gun. This is because critics of it thought that the regulations also unfairly affected people with eating disorders or, say, mental health issues that affected them managing their finances, and hey, why should they not have guns as well? I mean, why should people suffering from any mental health issues be denied the right to accidentally leave the safety off and shoot themselves in the face? The measure simply meant that people with mental health issues had to have extra background checks before they could purchase a weapon. The fact that the US largely ignores and underfunds treatment of mental health issues is a whole other issue, but for now, it is all okay because even if you have schizoaffective disorder with strong desires to kill, you won't be able to get decent medical help, but you can still pop to guns or us and go for shopping therapy instead. Trump has previously promised to allow loaded handguns in schools because I guess that is one way to make kids learn and eliminate gun-free zones, so there is probably more to come. More than 30,000 people a year are killed by firearms in the US, so guns are an even bigger threat than terrorism ever would be. On the plus side, increasing gun availability means there is much more chance that Trump will get shot and, hey, I suppose I really did enjoy Westworld. Now, the thing I want to focus on this week is Trump's phone call to Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Initially, it sounded like Trump had refused to take 1,250 refugees that Australia had rejected, and now it seems like he's committed to honour it. I'm not sure what's not surprising here, that Trump had chosen to honour an agreement that Obama made, or that he knows what honouring something actually means. Trump's original refugee ban that has now been overturned by federal court and his initial refusal to take in refugees rejected by Australia are harsh. And it is, as with everything he ever fucking does, concerning. But it's important to also know that other countries are just as shitty to refugees too. Australia, for example, has been refusing to let any refugees arriving by boat enter the country since 2013. It was a policy brought in by misogynistic climate change denying hateful piece of shit and then Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Known as Operation Sovereign Borders, racist bigger Abbott. Did I say racist bigger in the list before? He's got so many character traits, it's really hard to keep up. Uh, racist bigger Abbott claimed a 90% reduction in illegal maritime arrivals because they refused to note any vessel's existence and using offshore processing forced all boats to resettle elsewhere, mainly now Nauru, an island in Micronesia, and Papua New Guinea because, you know, those places are so massive that they can really take extra population stresses unlike teeny weeny weeny Australia. Fuck's sake, it's called Micronesia for a reason. 
Since 2014, the Australia High Court ruled that the Australian government was breaching non-refoulement obligations, meaning that... Oh, sorry, what's that? Oh, oh, wait. What does it mean? Please explain. I don't understand. What does it mean? Non-refoulement is a principle of international law that forbids the rendering of a true victim of persecution to his or her persecutor. It is a main part of refugee law concerning the protection of refugees from being returned to places where their lives will be in danger. Basically, they're looking for safety, don't be a dickbag and fuck that up, which is basically what Trump was doing with many people affected by his ban, so he is, under international law, an official dickbag. Okay, so I made that last bit up. Under Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, Australia have kept this operation, despite the leaking of loads of files by The Guardian showing just how badly mistreated the refugees were in camps on Nauru and Manus Island. Loads of people protested calling for them to close, uh, but they haven't. And instead, Turnbull is now just sending the... is now just sending the 1,250 on Nauru and Manus to Trump's America, which you could say is even more cruel. Odd how the countries full of immigrants who took over the land and destroyed the culture and lifestyle of the indigenous people can be quite so shitty to others, eh? I suppose I guess they know just how dangerous people from elsewhere can be. In the UK, we are really awful to refugees as well. And here's another plug for a previous episode, because I thought I'd do that a lot this time. But if you go back to episode 15 of this show, uh, when I talked to Rebecca Omanira, she talked about how the treatment of people in UK detention centres like Dungavel and Yarlswood the conditions are really, really horrifying, and many are kept in unlimited detention, spending months and sometimes years in these grim places before the application is processed or they are deported, sometimes back to very dangerous places, completely, contra- completely contravening non-refoulement obligations. The UK have also only accepted a very minimal amount of refugees, only 216 in 2015 despite millions of applications. They have to meet stricter criteria than what you demand on your Match.com profile, you snob. In 2013, gay and lesbian asylum seekers fleeing death threats from their own countries, some of whom had been waiting 16 years to be approved, were asked to provide photo or video evidence of highly personal sexual activity to the Home Office for proof of sexuality. Which is actually quite similar to what you asked for on your Match.com profile, isn't it? Then, if you do get approved, you get about five quid a day to live on for food, clothing and everything, and you're not allowed to work for 12 months. So you're essentially trapped in poverty and in a country where it rains all the time and Nigel Farage keeps saying you're trying to ruin things. It's almost like sending refugees to us would contravene the non-refuelment obligations. Plus, while we've all been worried about Trump, the UK have spent 2.3 billion... The UK have spent 2.3 million pounds on a wall in Calais to separate the Calais jungle from passing trucks. That's after the camp was bulldozed and the refugees sent all over France. So that's 2.3 million pounds that could have been used on proper shelter or even for things like the NHS or social care or just to buy me sweets for saying non-refuelment more times in a podcast this week than anyone else. So yes, uh, Trump is an awful human being, but we need to challenge and protest about the way people are treated here and Australia as well. Otherwise, we're just complaining that America aren't being mean to refugees in the right way, which amounts to some of the worst one-upmanship or more one-downmanship that I've ever heard. Though if the UK, US and Australia all do try to outdo each other in being the absolute worst, I guess us citizens of those countries will have to start fleeing to other countries. And let me tell you, we should totally aim for Sweden, Germany or Brazil, because they're winners at treating refugees right. Oh, and what I didn't have time for this week in talking about Trump is all the unnecessary deaths in Yemen in a US military raid that was badly planned that Trump has now blamed on Obama and all seems to be in aid of him getting a golf course built in Dubai. Oh, and he suggested in a talk to the military that there's loads of terrorism in the world, especially Europe, but the dishonest media won't report it. This sort of complete making up of stories is hugely depressing. I mean, 
you know, I sort of wish at least he'd make up nice imaginary happenings. It says something about his lack of creativity and Kellyanne Conway's when she imagines a massacre and he thinks up terrorism. They should probably get some adult colouring in books or something to expand their artistic side. But yeah, it is depressing, but on the plus side, and I think that's what we always have to look for in these current times, we can all just tell Trump that he's absolutely right and terrorism is rife all over Europe all the time everywhere and that it's probably best for his safety if he just doesn't visit ever. Ever, ever, ever. And now, back to Giles. I was just going to go back to your just discussing sort of uh, current papers. Is that is that not uh, a form of the corporate fascism that you're discussing earlier? If you know, if you look at say, I suppose Murdoch owns so much of the media, or these these newspaper moguls own so much of it. Is that then a uh, a form of the corporate well, no, there's not quite corporatism in the fascist sense. In the okay. fascist sense, you know, you would have some body of, for example, lawyers would all be part of a corporation, and they would have their own little parliament of lawyers, and when they wanted to see laws enacted in their favour in some way because they saw there was a problem in their, within their corporation, they would petition government to. So that's a different form of corporatism. But what is interesting, I think, you know, uh, modern politics, not necessarily my subject, but Trump. Um, there was one, I think the New York Post, which is owned by Murdoch, was the one newspaper that supported Trump. Every other newspaper or news group supported Hillary. So yeah, it doesn't necessarily work in your favor, does it? In this country, the Remain people in the plebiscite, they um, uh, were more or less a tiny amount of press coverage, you know, it was essentially just The Guardian um, and The Independent maybe, you know, The Times was theoretically in favour of Remain, but, you know, its proprietor was not. Yes, that's true. That's very true. I didn't think about that, of course, in the States and, and still now the press are incredibly critical of Trump. Oh, yes, absolutely. Aside from, yeah. from Fox News, perhaps. But, um, yeah, so in terms of, uh, so there are obviously a, a, a variety of differences and I think like you've quite clearly explained it isn't it isn't fascism as such what we're seeing now, um, but it is. It seems like it's an authoritarianism, at, at least in, in America, or is, as as Trump's sort of trying to defy the courts and um, you know. Yes. Yeah, so, well, now I was going to get to because one of your later questions, you know, some of the features of emerging uh, totalitarianism and indeed fascism. It doesn't necessarily mean fascism, but it does mean the end of representative democracy, which is what I would call Westminster democracy, as representative or parliamentary democracy, is governing by decree. And we've seen two weeks of Trump now. I don't think he's consulted his Congress at all. He just sits there and people clap. Um, they stand around him and clap, and he signs decrees. Now, this is similar um, to the way that the Nazis governed. The Nazis governed by issuing decrees, because after the 23rd of March, 1933, and the burning of the Reichstag, you know, there was no more representative democracy. Um, all there was was when ministries wanted to sign another order, that order was signed by Adolf Hitler or by the ministries themselves and just went out and it became law. Um, it was not ratified by any popular assembly. And I think that this has been going on for some time in America, and I think probably Trump is not universally guilty of it. I think it's called pen and phone. 
and Obama used it just as much, which is that once you're president, you have a huge amount of power just to essentially to issue decrees. Now, in this country, it isn't true. Um, you know, you go through Parliament. Um, but here is Theresa, who is actually trying to get through this Brexit thing without consulting her Parliament. And it required the bravery of Gina Miller to um, raise the money by crowdfunding to put pressure on the courts to, to stop her. Um, but, uh, you know, she wasn't willingly going to go down that route or take it through Parliament. Um, so, you know, we do see a sinister turn here, which is essentially um, winding up parliament and parliamentary democracy. But you can see why, in a way, that parliamentary democracy is a complicated idea. Uh, for people who are sort of happier clicking on things on their computer screens and voting by plebiscite or referendum, you know, which just says yes, no, yes, no, you know, the idea of placing your trust in a particular person in your uh, electoral um, um, circumscription or whatever they're called here, in your borough or whatever it's called, um, you, um, you say, well, I like that candidate, and he's offering me this, that, and the other. So yeah, as long as he is prepared to put through what I want, I will elect him for five years. If in the course of those five years he doesn't do what I want, I won't vote for him again. Now, he's got five years of a mandate. He's allowed to do what he likes during that mandate. But if he doesn't do what you like him to do, then you have every right to say, I'm not going to vote for you again. Now, parliamentary democracy is quite complicated in its indirect nature. And you're seeing now that people really don't understand parliamentary democracy. They keep going on about democracy. This is democracy. We voted for democracy. We voted for Brexit. That is democracy. But we've had a system of democracy going in this country for hundreds of years, and that is called parliamentary democracy. And now we see that the actual representatives, the, the MPs, are too spineless to actually obey their electors anymore because they're frightened that they're, they're going to lose their jobs or their constituencies or whatever. So, you know, now we had the shameful uh, uh, thing last week of people who represented constituencies like mine here at Camden in London actually voting uh, for Brexit when, you know, three-quarters of their electors who brought them to power told them they didn't want Brexit. Yeah, it's it's uh, there's been a, a sort of real confusion over the idea of what parliamentary sovereignty means. Yes, and, I mean, uh, <laughs> it seems that quite a lot of MPs don't actually understand, you know, that they actually, you know, their choice resides on us. I fully understand somebody who comes from Stoke-on-Trent. As it happens, it was Tristram Hunt who probably does believe in uh, in Remain. But that in Stoke-on-Trent, where three-quarters of the people want to leave the European Union, that the MP should actually argue that case. But I do not understand how that could be true for the case of the MP for Camden. Hmm. And and so in uh, just to go back to the sort of uh, historical aspects, I suppose, is, you know, were... Were the Trump situation to become even more authoritarian and, and or totalitarian, uh, you know, history's kind of shown that these things are often dealt with via a war <laughs> or through or some sort of quite drastic violence. Normally, if we, you know, even if we look to the Middle East in the in the last sort of ten twenty years, is there? Were there other ways to tackle, um, I suppose if we look at fascism, I know that's not what we have now, but what were the other ways, effective ways of tackling it? 
Well, the, well it, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, I think I put this here in most uh, parts, fascism defeated by war. That is to say, this original fascism, um, uh, you know, Mussolini, Hitler. I mean, the Mussolini, of course, there was still the monarchy, which he hadn't abolished, and that remained in place. So in 1943, he was dismissed. So people forget the fact that, you know, that Mussolini was actually dismissed by the king. Um, it was the case in Germany. I mean, in the case of uh, in Romania, for example, which was also a fascist state between the wars, um, you know, they lost the war as well. Austrian fascism, which we forget about, was a sort of clerical corporate fascism, was killed by a bigger fascist, i.e. Germany, in 1938. Um, the two fascisms that just survived and sort of died of old age were Spain and Portugal. Uh, but Portugal had a sort of mild revolution um, in 1974. So, yes, in, in the main, you know, they, they are destroyed by violence. The only way to bring them down is by, uh, you know, because what happens when you get rid of all the constitutional checks and they've all been taken away, that there was nothing, there is nothing um, in the whole of the fascist dictator and his... Um, group of cronies, uh, when they're governing by decree, as we <laughs> we can see in, uh, to some extent, you know, there's a danger in this country, but we see Trump with his little billboard every day passing his decrees, then, you know, violence does become virtually the only option if they wind up the Constitution in some way. And, then, you know, that that is a worrying situation. You know, we have to be very conscious of what our rights are and what our Constitution is and how many things have to be maintained to stop this sort of arbitrary um, use of power. Uh, and, you know, we're back to the um, Article 50 and that sort of thing. And the fact that, the, that our uh, Prime Minister didn't want to place it before Parliament, you know, and well done that woman who, um, uh, who forced uh, the hand of the Prime Minister to actually place the bill before Parliament. And so, you know, I suppose people always say that history repeats itself, but uh, there's a there's a lot of things going on now that feel like they haven't happened before. Um, what you know, if uh, if you're looking back at history and, and and or it's just even the past century, what what do you think is going to be happening next? Where is this going to go, or what should we be looking for? I suppose. What? Well, uh, it is worrying, but you know. To every action, there is um, what is it? It's a sort of law of physics, isn't it? Um, you know, equal and opposite reaction. Uh, and we are seeing, you know, what went before always contributes to what comes afterwards. And maybe, you know, it is true, as we were talking about Akron earlier, and and the neglect of people in different parts of the country, and the fact that, you know, London is favoured in some way, but maybe South Shields is not, or, you know, there are huge tracts of the British Midlands in which nobody seems to take any notice of, and the people there, they live in conditions where they feel that, you know, much put upon, and there's huge amounts of immigration, and there is this, that, and the other. And so, you know, finally, they get their say. But if they push very hard, 
for uh, their own uh, viewpoint to become law, there's almost certainly going to be within a generation uh, a, a growing distaste for their view. And so, you know, you will see with time that reaction will take place. Um, you know, the, the sort of, uh, um, I don't really like the word liberalism in this context, but the sort of actions promoted by Obama during his eight years in the White House were bound to end up with a furious denunciation of political correctness. And this is what Trump really very largely represents. And uh, the Faragists, if you like, are also pushing that view, which is a view which is essentially um, attacking sort of censorship and ostracism that were pushed during the years that led up to the election of Trump or the, 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 the 23rd of June here in Britain. You know, they think that the chance, you know, their shackles have been removed. They're allowed now to be as rude as they like and they're allowed to say what they like because that particular era has come to a close. Now, there will be a reaction. Uh, uh, and in purely Hegelian terms, we should see some sort of synthesis where, uh, you know, uh, we learn something from both sides. Whether that actually happens or not, I couldn't tell you. I'm not a prophet, but it does look very worrying from from uh, from here that um, unless we're prepared to fight for our ancient liberties, you know, we we could see some very serious changes to the style of government. Sure. And I, I suppose the only hope is that looking at history after a period of chaos is always it tends to be quite good for a while. So we just have to hold out, I suppose, for a little bit. Well, we do. And I think we have to keep our uh, we have to keep our eye on the ball because um, we cannot. I mean, if we care and if we're not the, the new elite, because apparently, you know, People like me sitting here in London, you know, I'm part of an elite, first I heard of it, but apparently it's true, um, that, you know, this new elite that's taken over from people like me sitting in my chair in London, um, uh, wherever they are, because they are now the elite, because they are the 51.9, not the 48.1, but the 58.1, 51.9 represents the new elite, um, will also realize that they are now vulnerable because they can be challenged by people who wish to destroy the new elite. So, you know, they must, um, they must uh, work out that their own vulnerability now from the, the counter-revolution when that takes place. So, well, thank you very much for speaking to me. Before, um, I've got two more questions for you, a bit lighter, I think. Uh, firstly, um, apart from your own writing and your own Twitter and articles, um, are there any other um, people, historians or otherwise, that you think listeners um, to this podcast should follow or check out if they're interested in political history or perhaps any history that echoes what's happening now? Well, I mean, you know, they, they could do worse than, yeah, I mean, I, I write about Germany most of the time. I mean, they could do worse than write, uh, read sort of homegrown historians like Richard Evans uh, or Ian Kershaw, who are very more than reliable uh, and good historians who would uh, teach them a lot about, you know, what took place between 1933 and 1945 in Germany. And, you know, that the, the important references to fascism and, and how it came about would certainly be in those books. Or I, I point to Twitter that my 
friend, Frank McDonald, who has a slightly different spelling of his name, is a good person to follow on Twitter, for example. You know, he, he does his daily um, Twitter cast, um, and he's well worth following. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And uh, very last question. Just uh, I, I often uh, these interviews on these shows often end with a kind of uh, quite quite bleakly. So I thought in a way to try and lighten it. Uh, I know you're a wine expert as well as an expert on German history. Um, what uh, sort of wine do you recommend uh, we drink while watching the news at the moment? What would go best? <laughs> Well, I think probably you need something like a whiskey to watch the current <laughs> news. Or, or it's James Bond's boss, M, you know, when he's crossed with Bond, he has an Algerian wine called the Infuriator. And when he's very angry with Bond, he has a whole bottle of the Infuriator with lunch. <laughs> but there's not very much Algerian wine around anymore because after France lost Algeria as a colony, the, the um, people grubbed up the vines and there's very little of it. But the important point about the Infuriator was that it was strong. So I would sort of get something from Sicily um, uh, <laughs> at about 15 degrees of alcohol, a big strapping red with guts, because guts is what you need at the moment, and guts is certainly something that we need from our parliamentarians. Huge thanks to Giles for that very informative chat. Uh, history is not my strong suit. That accolade goes to my set of medieval armour. I'm so not sorry. Uh, so I genuinely didn't know about the different types of fascist political ideals, uh, nor that the racist side of fascism emerged with Hitler. Uh, also, it's very interesting to hear that Trump isn't so much a fascist, but a sort of totalitarian, authoritarian, kleptocratic horror with fascist elements. Phew. So we should all be all right then. Yeah, guys? Guys? Anyway, uh, Giles can be found on Twitter at Giles McDonough. That's uh, M-A-C-D-O-N-O-G-H. And his website is mcdonough.co.uk. Uh, you can find links to all his books on there, including his two on World War II German history and fascism called 1938 and After the Reich. And as he says, a new book is coming soon, which is very exciting. Uh, as for Giles's recommendations, uh, Professor Frank McDonough is on Twitter at FXMC1957. And can I also recommend the brilliant historian Alex von Tuzelman, who is Alex V. Tuzelman. That's T-U-N-Z-E-L-Z-E-L. I'm not American. Z-E-L-M-A-N-N. Uh, she's on Twitter and she recommended Giles to me and is absolutely brilliant. So follow her too. Um, I've got a few interesting guests lined up. But as I say, every single week, if you have someone you'd like me to talk to uh, for the podcast, I mean, not a chat, uh, then please drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro group on Facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com. Yeah, still this fucking thing. When is it going to stop? I'm not sure, but there must be an end to downhill, right? I mean, you can only go downhill so far before it stops being downhill. I mean, it could only be so long before the bike that is the UK hits the low wall, large rock or inconveniently placed postbox that is the Brexit conclusion, right? Sadly, like some horrible glitch in a shitty cycling game, we can see that postbox, but it's still oh so far away and the approach is getting more and more disconcerting. This past week has had more idiocy from disgrace, disgrace, Liam Fox and disgrace, who said that it was unlikely the UK would hit the £1 trillion export target that he made up in his own stupid, disgraced head, because he made it up in his own stupid, disgraced head. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but trust me, that sums it up. Then the Article 50 vote caused more disruption from Labour, who are constantly angry that they have to oppose the Tories when they've got themselves to take down. Keir Starmer said as Democrats they should vote for the Democratic referendum result, but still 36 Labour MPs voted against it and Corbyn's whip, seven of which are in majority leave voting constituencies. And what this shows is that uh, MPs are people, probably, and therefore 
They vote sometimes for what their constituents want, sometimes for what they think they should want, and sometimes, in the case of Diane Abbott, just not bothered to turn up at all. The only Conservative MP that voted Remain was Ken Clark, who gave a 20-minute speech comparing the whole affair to a Mad Hatter's Tea Party, which is not a very fair comparison because the Mad Hatter didn't have any innovative jams. Clark also said that no sensible countries have referendums, and proved his point by naming Germany, and then ruined his point by naming America. Clark has never liked letting people have their say though, which is why back in 2012 he proposed secret courts keeping people entirely away from the trials of terrorism suspects. After the vote, of course, the white paper was revealed, and unlike the Beatles' white album, I wouldn't say on review that it's remotely near the government's greatest work, especially as it just contains so many repeats or covers of earlier stuff. All the stuff on the Great Repeal Bill, Northern Ireland and security is pretty much as vague as it's always been. Uh, it's just now slightly clarified vagueness with sentences like how the Northern Irish border between them and the Republic shall be as seamless and frictionless a border as possible. So what, made of graphene then? Or how the UK government aims to take control of our own laws, which I mean, you'd hope, because if they lose control of our own laws, minus the EU ones as well, we'll be in some sort of weird lawless state. Though, on the bright side, I really did like Westworld. On EU migrants in the UK, there's no more clarification than we've already heard from May. And again, on trade with the EU, there's just vagaries about having the most frictionless trade possible in goods and services. What, so made of graphene then? Perhaps the plan is that with all this lack of friction, we'll just slide back into the EU without anyone realising. And again, after some super dull stuff on leaving the legal framework for nuclear power but negotiating a new one, and leaving the customs unit but negotiating a new one, and now we'll have a mutually beneficial exit, and you realise that all of this is going to be done by disgraceful Liam Fox, so fuck it, none of that will happen. After all that, the white paper reiterates that no deal for the UK is better than a bad deal for the UK. Great! It's nice to set such high parameters. I mean, if we're covered in graphene like a British Iron Man, who's going to give us anything but a great deal with the EU? Oh, wait. It's Liam Fox wearing the suit, isn't it? Oh, fuck. And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, please give the show a review on iTunes if you can, and spread the word to all who listen. And look, if they won't listen, why not do an interpretive dance that they can watch? I suggest it includes a pivot bump choo-choo and at least two Turkish shimmies. Also, if you fancy bunging a dollar to the show's Patreon, it will help me to spend more time on this instead of playing Lego Batman on my phone, which um, I have to do for uh, financial reasons. Yeah, that, that sounded believable, right? Uh, the Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. And of course, drop me a line about the subjects in the show, the subjects in your mind, the royal subjects, or the subjects on your current language learning course. I'm currently trying my best to learn French properly, and I'm thoroughly enjoying saying la nourriture. Any uh, of those things, please do send them to at Parpolbro, the Parpolbro group on Facebook, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Hopefully I'll see some of you at my Leicester show this week or at the Angel Comedy shows in a few weeks' time. And this, of course, will be back next week when I'll be giving my special guide on how to tweet just like Donald Trump. Tip, uh, just run into a wall a few times and then give a dog your phone and hope autocorrect is on. This week's podcast was brought to you by the letters R.A.P. and the numbers 450,000 in memory of all those killed in the imaginary Bowling Green Massacre. Thoughts to all the families that don't exist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.